ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. From the first rudimentary programs of the 1950s to the sophisticated algorithms of today, the evolution of artificial intelligence has been rapid and exciting to watch. From navigation apps to chat GPT, artificial intelligence has the potential to change the way we all live. But this week on Download This Show, what does the future look like? This is your guide to the week in media, technology and future. My name's Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a very special episode of Download This Show and a very big thank you to our guests talking all about AI. I want to confirm that they are real people. They are definitely not AI. Uh, Joining us this week, special guest, uh, Kylie Walker, the CEO of the Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering. Welcome to Download This Show. Thanks so much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. And good friend of the program, reporter with The Guardian, Josh Taylor. Welcome. Good to be back. I don't think I've been able to deep fake myself yet. I mean, give it time. The night is young. (laughs) (laughs) We're not that far off, I assume. All right, I want to start off with how we got here, right? There's been so much discussion over the last couple of, really, years about what AI can do now. But let's talk about how we got here, right? 10, 15 years ago, what did AI actually look like, Kylie? Ah, look, it was very, very different. It was probably a lot less sophisticated than you would imagine an AI to be right now. It was more of a a concept that many, many computer scientists were working on and and a goal. But it had started to become applied in ways that probably weren't quite so visible to the public eye. So things like ChatGPT, obviously, which burst onto the scene last year and and really brought AI up into the public domain, uh, are kind of the, the icing on the cake, if you like. There have been more applications in robotics industry and in that sort of everyday just keeping society ticking for a little bit longer now. So what happened? Has it been a sort of a slow development behind the scenes or was there sort of a a major development that shifted? Because it feels like there was like quite a defined moment where AI was something that was sort of used on us and then suddenly there were this suite of services where we could now use it, Kylie. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that big change was the large language model generative AI. So ChatGPT is obviously the most um, well-known of those. And and that, um, yes, it hasn't just suddenly happened. Of course, these things take a lot of time and a lot of people and a lot of build-up to get to the point where suddenly it seems to be everywhere. This research has been going on for years. It's been applied for years, this technology. It's the generative models, the large language model, and, and those creative kind of applications that have suddenly made it very prominent to the public eye because all of a sudden we now have technology, machine learning technology that everyday citizens can interact with in a way that's fun, in a way that's interesting and intriguing, in a way that's also creating some risks and some questions about the application of technology. So we've gone from things like, you know, council trucks looking for potholes and reporting them in in an automatic way through to uh, the point where now you can create those deep fakes. You can mash up images and create sort of interesting poetry using these generative models. With technology, it it often is about the, the everyday. People are paying more attention attention to technologies that they understand, that they use, that they can see in their everyday life. But, you know, really, these advances are going on across a whole range of sectors all of the time. Josh, what do you think the psychological impact is? We go from AI being a thing being sort of used on and around us to something that we can now engage with. People can make AI images. People can, you know, chuck their school <laughs> school reports into ChatGPT. Like, how do you think it's changing us, knowing that that technology is, is there and accessible? 
I think it, it is just making it a lot more present in people's lives and making people feel like that they can actually be a part of it. Whereas, as sort of you were saying before, it was it was things being done to us before in terms of organisations and governments had huge amounts of data. They were building up these pieces of technology that could actually use that data and learn things. We talk about social media algorithms, things like that quite a bit. I think we're still at the sort of the early phases of it. We'll probably get into this later, but I think that probably one of the clear and present dangers is it does make things harder to figure out what's real and what's not as we go <laughs> go forward. But I think for now, it's it's just really about the democratisation of, of AI uh, for everyone at the moment. What do you think, Ali? Oh, so you're about to leap in Look, there, so take a beat. I was, I was, I was going to say, Mark, I think um, Josh raised a really important point there about large data sets because really the size of the data sets on everyday citizens has been rapidly evolving. It's been growing very, very quickly over the last decade or so. And we are, as citizens, we're giving a whole lot of companies and governments our data uh, for free, really, when we sign up for social media platforms, when we sign up to marketing websites, when we sign up to programs that give us points for purchasing things. All of those are really us saying here, have all of the information about the way that I behave, the things that I think, what I look at, what I research, what I buy. Now, those, those powerful data sets are really an absolutely crucial foundation for AI to work really, really effectively because Machine learning, yes, you set the parameters for it early. Um, the researchers or the, the computer scientists who are building it will create the rules, if you like, for that machine to think and to learn. But the data sets are like the food that they feed on. They need that information in order to be able to evolve, in order to be able to make decisions and then act on them. So that's really been a crucial step. Where to next? Well, it's got some really interesting questions for privacy. It's got some really interesting questions for security. It's got some really interesting questions for inclusion and social responsibility as well. We're going to get into all of that, but I, I'm going to do something uncharacteristic for this show. I'm going to, I'm going to start with unbridled optimism, Kylie. That's very unlike this show. <laughs> Because um, I know how it's going to end. It's going to end. It always ends with some dystopic vision of the future. So. Oh no, I'm always optimistic about the future. <laughs> good. Well, good. Then I'm glad we've got you on the show. So let's before we get into risks and security and privacy issues, let's just talk about what you're optimistic about. What, as you look at the technology as it sits now, what's coming down the pipeline? What are you most excited about that this technology can change about people's lives? Oh, so much. So much. It's almost, I don't even know where to start. So I'll give you a couple of a couple of examples. So research, scientific and technological research requires a lot of work to go through data. And in order to sort through and sift through those meta-analyses, imagine if we can do that almost automatically in the background. So you don't need people in there to do things like the Citizen Science Project that the ABC collaborated on a couple of years ago, where people were looking at pictures of the underwater landscape at the Great Barrier Reef and clicking on the, the crown of thorns starfish that they could see there because it's a, an invasive species and scientists were trying to work out, you know, how quickly it was spreading. Now, you don't need thousands and thousands of people to sift through images and click on those invasive species images when you've got an AI to do it. So that can happen very, very quickly. At many fewer people hours means that we can speed up that pace of research. Um, we can do that modelling much more quickly and that means that we can engage in novel design for solutions much more quickly and that's particularly exciting when it comes to drug design. So there 
there'll be many more options coming up much more quickly. And if you put that together with the way that AI can promote divergent thinking by facilitating the creation of novel ideas, by making connection between what we might think are completely disparate concepts, then you can uh, go into whole new directions of inquiry and potential problem solving. So I think that's really, really exciting. What about for you, Josh? I think if you take the sort of high level view and don't think about the potential for job losses that could come from this, but if it makes it easier for people to do their jobs, takes out a lot of the routine manual processing work that they might do. I was thinking about, you know, I, I use AI now to to transcribe my interviews for me. I obviously check them and things like that, but stuff like that that would just take so many hours, it frees me up to do other things as well like that, just more things like that where the job necessarily isn't being replaced, but it just makes life so much easier for a lot of people to to take out some of that sort of more mundane work they don't necessarily need to do and it doesn't really add anything to what they're doing. And yet, I mean, Kylie, we talked about this a lot at the time, but there was this moment not that long ago last year where we saw a number of very high-profile people calling for a slowdown of, of, of development of AI. So Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple. Like, when that moment happened... What was going through your head? Did you think it was the right call at the time or did it not make sense? Well, there are two potential interpretations of that call for a slowdown. One, you know, the cynical interpretation is that they just wanted a a pause so that they could get themselves ahead, you know, commercial competitiveness. But the less cynical interpretation is a concern for privacy and the issue of data sovereignty, which essentially translates as a concern that people may not know, We, we may not have really good understanding of the ways in which we're giving up our own information and therefore we're giving up our rights to control our own information and that's a really important piece that regulators and societies need to think about and get right if we want AI to support a healthy, thriving and inclusive society. You know, there's also a lack of regulation and control. Deepfake's probably the most obvious example there, using deep deepfake images and videos um, to harass people to spread misinformation, for example. So that is, that's something that we do need to think about. Technology always moves much more quickly than regulation can move. But uh, in this one, it is evolving more quickly than many technologies that we've sort of seen in the past. So it's a, there's a real sense of urgency around that. Josh, um, there are a whole range of risk factors with this technology, and it isn't just one set of technology, right? It's 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 a whole suite of of technologies that we're talking about here. But are there are there risks that you don't think are being talked about enough? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately we're still seeing it sort of play out at the moment. Like it's still very much this AI is having unintended consequences. Oh, there's risk to jobs. Oh, there's, you know, copyright issues. Oh, you know, there's election integrity issues. There's obviously like the, the doomsday scenario of like a AGI, sort of a, a conscious AI that's doing its own thing and, and ending the world as we've seen in so many movies and TV shows. But yeah, I, I think it is one of those things where I think it's not really recognised a lot that we are essentially now in an AI arms race. And this was this was something that came up towards the end of last year when there was sort of the board turmoil at OpenAI where Helen Turner, who was the, the only Australian member of the board, she'd written a paper basically saying, among other things, OpenAI potentially brought out ChatGPT too quickly and that forced all these other companies, including Google and things like that, to start rushing out their own AI to to basically compete. And we can say it's good because a lot of companies like Google and things like that are, are doing relatively responsible things, trying to do the right thing, putting in guardrails and things like that. But there will be a lot of companies who, you know, companies and countries who don't really think about 
doing sort of the responsible thing here. And I think that's the, that's the risk at the moment as well. If everyone's sort of developing this technology, not everyone's going to develop in the same responsible way. I know we've, there's a lot of panicky sort of articles. And, and like, I should say, like, some of it quite justified about AI. But in the commentary that's happened, are there areas you don't think get talked about enough? The one that I would like to highlight is the risk that marginalised people become even more marginalised. So people who are underserved, people who are in minority groups, people who have barriers to participating in democracy, in society, in education, in the workforce, um, that they are edged further out. And there are a couple of ways that we can mitigate that risk. One is around the guardrails that governments set for AI development. And, you know, you would hope that corporates setting their own responsible guardrails as well, but we also know that we need to keep an eye on each other and make sure that we hold each other to account on that ethical and moral responsibility. But the other really, really important way that we can mitigate that risk is to ensure that there is a diversity of voices at the table, at the building table for these technologies. So it's absolutely crucially important and I think really urgent that we have a really genuinely diversified technology workforce. And I say it's really urgent because this stuff is moving so quickly. Those parameters, those technologies are being built every day as we speak. And the longer we go, the more likely they are to be applied to managing things like health systems, social systems, education, transportation, and all of those other big picture systems that that we rely on to function as a society. And if they are built by people who all think the same way, who all look the same way, I'm not suggesting that those those scientists and those programmers uh, have ill intention, but if they don't know about the unintended exclusions that they're building into the system, then we've got no way to rein that back in. So we need that diversity of perspectives simply so that we understand the diversity of potential effects of the systems that they're building. Kylie, we're entering a year where there'll be a whole host of elections all around the world and, of course, the big one in the, in the US. How confident are you that there are enough regulations and guidelines around AI that it won't have a significant impact on, on what people think and misinformation? There's actually no doubt that AI can and will be used to create misinformation during elections. We've already seen that. It can be used to create all kinds of campaign materials. We can expect to see it being used to discredit or smear opponents. And in highly polarised conditions, people are more likely to believe and share inflammatory information that matches their identity. So it can be used to appeal to people's patterns and choices as well. And that can be fueled by uh, social media as well as the news media and community connections. So that those new kinds of AI misinformation are a real possibility. And really the only antidote to that is to equip people with the critical thinking skills and the technological awareness to understand that what they're looking at may not be real. Is there not a flip side to that, though, where people learn to be distrustful of absolutely everything, that that also creates its own problems where people genuinely don't trust anything they say anymore, Kylie? Oh, it's such a, a challenge, absolutely. You know, it's a really fine line to walk and um, and we need to find a way to build trust in evidence. And, uh, I mean, maybe we're going to go a little bit retro, a little bit analogue, because people are going to want to see people in the flesh, candidates in the flesh. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> do we know? <laughs> or maybe, like, maybe we... <laughs> there'll be like paper letters being posted out to folk because you can't trust what, you, what you're reading in the, social, in the socials. Um, Josh, back in October, the, the, the Biden administration in the US made labelling and detection of AI-generated content a focus of, a, of an executive order. Do you think legislation or regulations like that will help? 
Uh, yeah, but I think we're we're already starting to see companies be a little bit proactive on that as well. Obviously, realizing that you know, we, given it's such a big election year, it's something they need to be on top of. You know, we had Meta, Google, Adobe, a few others say that they're building in watermarking into or you know types of watermarking into AI generated images that will make it easier for them to detect and then label it proactively on social networks, which is very helpful. And they're also in the in the process of developing technology that will automatically detect if you upload a, f- a photo to Facebook or something like that, and they think it's AI that it's doing it. So they are doing it, but it, it kind of comes back to what I was saying before in terms of while a lot of these companies will be doing the right thing, there will be others that are not. And although you know we focus a lot on what gets posted on Facebook or Twitter or uh, Instagram or any of the other social networks, a lot of this stuff that sort of the highly volatile fake news stuff ends up going on those group chat, like less public view kind of circulations that we don't potentially see. And while they might end up on, on TikTok or something else at some point, a lot of the damage might be already done if, if people are not really thinking about, you know, is this real or is this not? So I think in, the, in that place, I think government regulation will help, but it's a matter of enforcement as well. I think it's, some companies will probably be more cooperative than others. Kylie, there's a question that has bubbled up in my head listening to the two of you talk, and I just need you to promise not laugh at me when I ask. I don't think I could promise that. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, I walked into that one. For decades, we've had this fear instilled in us by popular culture of AI achieving sentience. Is that actually a thing? Like, is is there a circumstance under which AI actually can achieve sentience, or is that purely the domain of popular culture? The Terminator thing, yeah. Um, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to approach it with some so, sobriety here, but yeah. I don't know how to phrase it. Like, is Skynet going to happen, Kylie? Tell me now. Uh, no, it's the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, it, it's. I think it's really dangerous to anthropomorphize technology. This isn't a person. It's not going to become sentient. It's not going to be um, an independent entity that does its own thing and stops listening to the rules. We absolutely have the responsibility. And I guess the way that it's been done is there's no other option that this thing does what it's told. Any technology responds to the rules that it's been given by the people who built it. If there was some kind of Skynet emerging, it wouldn't be because a computer kind of gained sentience and decided to rule the world. It would be because people were driving it. And look, technology is neutral. It's only as good or as evil as the people who build it and use it. Okay, so here's my thing with that. Um, there's plenty of people capable of evil out in the world. <laughs> so does, should that make me feel more or less confident, Josh? Well, I think the other thing is that we've already seen with, with a lot of the generative AI that's out there already that the companies put rules in place and people will figure out ways to make the, the AI bend the rules to give it the response that it wants. So I would not be like, you know, you can put these guardrails in, but people will ultimately find a way to get around it. I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if AI got so intelligent that it'll find a way around it. And yeah, obviously you've, you've got nefarious players in there too. I wonder if this ultimately does come down to, if you treat it like, you, you know, nuclear weapons and, and, uh, rules around who can have what piece of technology and things like that because we're, we're fast getting the stage where only sort of responsible players should potentially have access to it but how do you actually decide who gets access to it or not it's it's, it's very sort of murky territory at the moment i don't think we've completely thought it all through i just want to get confirmation and, and i'm i'm 100 going to hold you to this kylie skynet unlikely <laughs> 
you can come and find me if Skynet emerges. But yeah, I, I think Skynet's a highly unlikely outcome. Um, it's always tempting to think of the like the worst case scenario, though. I think we like to do that as human beings, and it's useful to do that because it provides a warning bell, so we can act now to make sure that within the best of our ability that we do have those guardrails in place, that we do have a, a societal moral imperative for responsible use of these technologies, like we do for other technologies. And part of it is the regulation and the rules and part of it is the the public holding those folk who are building these things and using these things to account. Part of it is also, though, as I said, education. And and I think it's really, really important that we provide that training and education, not just at school but across the community so that people can really equip themselves with the critical thinking skills and understanding of what these technologies can do and how to interact with them responsibly and apply them responsibly. I suppose as adjacent to this, it is worth talking about the fact that there are already applications in military contexts and cybersecurity contexts where AI is being used. I am taking the no Skynet prediction from from Kylie, but uh, but we do know that AI is being used in in theatres of war, Josh. But those are often areas where we don't have a lot of transparency. Is my understanding? Is that is is that your understanding? I mean, yeah, like we don't know how they're using it, and it's one of those things. You know, defence has got to keep it secret so the the enemy doesn't know what it's doing and things like that. I think there needs to be way more transparency around there. Not just in defence, it needs to be everywhere. One of the things that that frequently happens is that when generative AI, in particular is doing something that it's not supposed to be doing. The companies involved will say, oh, we didn't mean to do that. There's something in the data set, we'll, we'll fix it up and things like that. But a lot of the time, the actual the data that it's being trained on, we don't actually have access to, we can't actually see for ourselves. And that means that there's always going to be sort of some level of, of bias or something missing from it or something like that. And I think that it ultimately comes down to no matter how much we use this technology, there always needs to be humans involved. And, then, and that ultimately, someone has to hold responsibility for it and say, making the decision about what's being output and what's allowed and things like that. I think you need to ultimately, you can't just leave it up to the AI. You need to have a human involved in the process. The two common themes that seem to be coming out here is about transparency and humans being involved. Is that the level at which regulation should happen? It should be like broader, uh, top-level language around uh, what we expect as a society from transparency of this technology, Kylie? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that we can probably get a little bit more specific about potential applications as well. I think that there should be some specific regulations where it comes to the human elements. So if you're looking at uh, defence is a really tricky one, as Josh said, and we know that the, the R&D budget for defence globally is the by far the biggest R&D budget that, that exists. So we know that these technologies will continue to evolve much quicker in that domain than, than potentially in others. But when it comes to things like social services, community sector, transportation, looking at how these um, these technologies are applied in education, I think that we can absolutely apply the same kind of moral guidelines as we do already in those domains. So it, it is about making sure that we continue to be responsible, that we continue to pay attention to the way that, that the technology is being changed and used and that we have mechanisms for people to report and whistleblow on bad players and potentially whether intended or unintended, potentially bad consequences for people. Um, and then there do have to be, I think, some some consequences av- available for governments and courts to use as well. The, I know this is very general, but what sort of consequences would be meaningful in that realm? 
Well, I, I think if if the work that you're doing and the technology that you're building and applying is creating harm to people, then you ought to be held responsible in the same way that you might be held responsible for causing harm to people in other ways. Just because it's a new technology doesn't mean that you are absolved of that responsibility. The examples are all around us. A new technology is just a new tool. So the people behind it um, ought always to be held responsible for using it appropriately and responsibly. What if it's not obvious who's behind it? Oh, well, that's tricky, isn't it? Uh, that's, that's a challenge for law enforcement, right? They're going to <laughs> yeah. have to keep pace too. Well, I mean, like we're seeing that already. You know, you look at um, in the area of cybersecurity now, you're seeing it's being much easier to launch malware attacks and things like that. And once sort of AI gets involved in that, it's going to be, even bigger and there's going to be a little that law enforcement to do except to sort of try and disrupt it at the source. It's, it's much harder to hold anyone to account for that. We've talked a lot about things like ChatGPT and military applications, but AI has filtered its way into a whole host of areas we interact with, healthcare, finance. Kylie, as we look forward to the next year or so, is there a particular area where you expect its use to massively explode? Mm. I mean, I think we've got some really interesting opportunities around modern manufacturing, bespoke manufacturing and uh, and logistics, which doesn't sound terribly exciting when you say it, but think about the efficiencies that it might bring. And that will open up the capability to establish a genuinely circular economy. So an economy in which we have zero waste. That's where we're hoping it will head. So when you think about it, if you're building a product, you can embed sensors into that product that will track the product over its lifetime. You can create it in such a way that it can be dismantled and reassembled as a different product um, and so that you look at not recycling but reusing in in new ways, repurposing. So you don't just have a life cycle, you have multiple life cycles. And then at the end, because you've embedded those sensors, you can make the manufacturer of that product responsible for its decommissioning at the end of its multiple life cycles. And so that opens up possibilities for a, a really much more responsible approach to environmental environmental management when it comes to waste. For example, we can look at, um, again, efficiencies in transportation coordination. I think um, that's, you know, it's a really tricky problem to manage congestion on roads and, you know, designing the most effective uh, bus routes and train timetables and making sure that uh, public uh, transport is appropriate for the the, uh, ways in which people want to use it, which we know it's not in many places around the world. Um, So bringing AI to Uh, solving that problem could uh, not only help people get to places faster and more efficiently, but it'll help save money for for councils and local governments as well. Um, So I think a lot of the applications coming in the next couple of years are not necessarily the things that you might think of as very, very exciting, but they will make material differences to the way that people live. Josh, in the time that we've been sitting here chatting, I've got not one but two separate emails about ChatGPT being used for legal advice. Are there areas in which AI is likely to be used in the next couple of years you think people should keep their eye on? Um, I mean, I think the legal one is is quite an interesting question because there are, you know, particularly standardised forms that you need to fill out and things like that. that. That process can be automated, but we've already seen people getting in trouble where they've had uh, they've tried to you know develop a legal argument to put in front of a judge, and it's quoted some some law that doesn't exist, and it's because it's you know the AI hallucination working in there. Um, I think that's probably that's probably the sort of the area we probably need to most li- live on, like, look at. It's it's one of those things where um, we're going to see people integrating into their lives um, without particularly thinking about um, 
the the ramifications and the consequences of it and and being caught out for using it in ways that potentially shouldn't have been using and i think that ultimately comes back down to this this is all happening very quickly and we don't really have the rules in place yet so it's, it's going to be sort of muddling our way through it a little bit we are unfortunately out of time. Huge thank you to our guests this week. Josh Taylor, reporter with The Guardian. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And the CEO of the Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering, Kylie Walker. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Likewise. Thank you, Mark. Uh, if you enjoyed the program, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to listen to us on. And, of course, you can find both this show and all ABC podcasts on ABC Listen. I'm Mark Fennell. And thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.